Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheem Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank everyone who has tuned in today to listen to a little bit of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, I send out greetings to our good friends in Australia and the Philippines who tune in each week on Radio Maria, and of course our friends in the United Kingdom listening on Radio Maria England and Radio Maria Ireland. And of course we can't forget our good friends in North America, our good folks in Canada at Radio Maria Canada, and our many partners in the United States through uh, Radio Maria, and of course uh, our good friends who have joined us now uh, from, I like to say, the South, and uh, again, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, uh, our good friends at Catholic Community of Media. And so uh, again, our family is growing, and um, again, I don't want to forget um, what I like to say my humble beginnings at uh, a small community radio station in Kitchener-Waterloo called CKWR. And uh, that's where this show began back in the year 2012. And uh, of course, the show is still heard on FM 98.5 CKWR every week, every Sunday morning at 6 a.m. So no matter when you're listening or where you're listening, I'm glad you're listening. And of course, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen will uh, bring us uh, again to heaven. I like to say uh, a priest, uh, one of the best uh, descriptions I ever heard of a priest is a priest is someone who brings Jesus to the people and in turns bring the people to Jesus. And I, I think this is what Fulton Sheen does so well. He brings us to Jesus and of course he teaches us the faith and uh, we've been going through his catechism series and uh, we're now coming up to the lessons on marriage. And so I thought I would share with you today uh, one of his television shows from uh, Life is Worth Living. Uh, he gave uh, a show titled For Better or For Worse. And I think we always think of that in the marriage vows and for better or for worse in sickness and in health. Uh, so again, he wanted to talk about marriage on his television show, so we'll share that with you today. And the catechism lesson is titled Marriage Problems, and uh, boy, do we see that today in society with over 50% of marriages ending in divorce. So uh, Fulton Sheen can help avert some of those catastrophes or those uh, you know sad situations. Uh, we wish we had more good catechesis on marriage, and so uh, we did find it in Fulton Sheen. So I hope you will enjoy this reflection today. And so without further ado, may I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Sheen from his Life is Worth Living television show, where he will speak to us on the topic, 
for better or for worse. Please enjoy. Friends, you know the definition of an adult. One who has stopped growing at both ends and has begun to grow in the middle. But no one has ever given a very good definition of a teenager. George Bernard Shaw once said, it is a pity that youth has been wasted on the young. But it probably is no pity at all, for the good Lord knew it was much better to put the illusions of life at the beginning and the discovery of the laws of life at the end on the verge of eternity. And since we cannot think of a good definition of a teenager, possibly you might be interested in hearing something of the psychology of the teenager. And we will attempt to bring the psychology of teenagers to three dominant characteristic notes. It seems as if we're always dealing in three, but it's always believed that everything that is perfect travels in threes. Now, the first characteristic note of the teenager is self-consciousness. The difference between a child and a teenager is this. A child wants to be loved. A teenager wants to love. When a teenager emerges, he's discovering his own personality. His ego is beginning to break forth. It's almost like a chick that is inside of a shell, and he's breaking that shell in which he's been confined, the shell of the family, and now is breaking out into a great, broad world. But what is breaking out, actually, is his personality. Up to this point, his life has been merged very much in a family. So that if the parents said, we are going to visit Aunt Jane today, the child himself had to go. But later on, the teenager begins to feel his own mind and his own images and his own emotions emerging within himself, and out comes the eye. And this is the day you can always tell a teenager boy he begins to carry a comb. <laughs> he's, he's proud of his personality. And the girl, she wins the battle of lipstick. Uh, then it's evident, too, in the way they talk. They have a language of their own. And they're rather proud of it when nobody ever understands them. What is it you call it? The bebop or bebop language, whatever it is. <laughs> Dig that bishop on television, whatever they're supposed to say. And in addition to that, then they love to wear clothes that attract attention. They feel that there's a kind of a conspiracy against their own ego. And they are anxious to assert themselves, and so the boys wear socks that are so loud their feet can never go to sleep. <laughs> and uh, there is uh, a fondness, too, for writing names on the side of automobiles and driving hot rods and all such things, making considerable noise in streetcars and buses and the like, in order that people may be conscious that here at last 
a personality is beginning to emerge. And parents ought to be very patient with teenagers because let them not forget that when the personality begins to assert itself, we have the foundation of a democracy. Be not too hard on them. Then the second stage. You know, I suppose one of Jackie Gleason's characters, Mr. Babbitt, would say of my little angel, you're a nice angel, <laughs> the way he cleans my blackboard. The second characteristic note of a teenager is imitation. The personality has need of exteriorizing itself. And it may do it in one of two ways. It may do it, first of all, by creation, and secondly, by imitation. If the teenager is keen on developing his own character, being himself and not someone else, Then he creates. He assumes responsibility. He has a sense of values. He knows the purpose in life. He's willing to say no to certain things. And he resists the crowd and the mob when the crowd and the mob are wrong. There are not many, however, who are creative, even among adults. The creative minority is always the minority. Now, this interiority is sometimes achieved in relief by imitation. Imitation is an escape from responsibility, escape from character building, an escape from self-restraint, and an escape from originality. You see this imitation, for example, in boys. They want to be like the old man, so they smoke. Some of them even inhale. <laughs> This would be an excellent moment for a commercial. <laughs> and then the girls, well, they wear high heels. They begin to wear veils. They want to wear mother's mink. Father still owes $800 on it, but they want to wear the mink. <laughs> the imitation, too, of dress. Notice when a high school empties, almost everybody's dressed alike. There are a few who dress a certain way, and almost everybody follows them. And this imitation, too, manifests itself in queer kind of gregariousness. This is the age when personality is not able to stand by itself. And so it merges with the group. Hence the gang age, hence fan clubs, and hence the kind of a mass courtship in which a group of boys will meet a group of girls. And not one of them is bold enough to meet the girl by himself, and so he has to have companions. <laughs> He's hardly strong enough to stand on his own amorous feet, so he has to lean on somebody else. And these are all parts of the, uh, of the imitation which escapes uh, responsibility. And yet, it has its own advantages and disadvantages. Sometimes the teenager revolts against the parents and revolts against them because 
he feels that this personality of his is not to be submerged in another, that he forgets very often that the parents were once teenagers, and they have considerable wisdom, and they are able to guide and direct in a far better way very often than the teenager imagines. Then there comes the third characteristic, and the third characteristic of teenagers is restlessness. Uh, the teenager is like mercury. If you ever hit uh, several drops of mercury, they disperse in all directions. So there is the unfolding in a teenager of a tremendous biological urge. The first characteristic notes I gave, uh, which are really the key to adolescence, namely the emergence of personality, are psychical. This one is physiological to a great extent, and also biological. Manifests itself, puppy loves, crushes, and devour of friendships which are supposed to be lasting through life. There are no friendships that seem closer than the friendships of teenagers, and yet there are hardly any friendships that are quite as volatile as those of a teenager. But this urge which they have for affection, for love, for friendship, for society, is good and right. God put it in them. And it is not to be crushed. Sometimes it manifests itself in love of a certain kind of music. There are various kinds of music. There's head music, like, for example, Bach. Then there's harp music, like Schubert. And then there is what might be called visceral music that excites motion. For example, <laughs> you were supposed to. Now, why is it you want to do that? It's simply because there's a certain type of uh, motion that is suggested, and it calls for response. Now, the music which the teenagers love is that kind of music. It's a music in which certain notes give the suggestion of movement, uh, but the notes are not carried through. You have to complete the motion. And that's why jitterbugs and all of that kind of music, of which the teenagers are so very, very fond. Then there even comes, as you know, swooning with certain kinds of music and singing. And swooning is what? It's a desire to have a kind of a consummation of an emotion. It's a vicarious erotic experience. A desire to live out to the utmost the emotion that they feel. General MacArthur said the generals did not die. They just fade away. So do teenagers. Fade away. <laughs> but that's good, too. Because the great advantage of this mercurial restlessness is the fact that the young are able 
in their restlessness and in their search, to go about and exhaust all of the possible vocations that there are in life. It is in this time of life that the teenager decides for himself whether he will be a lawyer, a doctor, a merchant, uh, whether he will uh, become a farmer, a professor. He has almost in his imagination, for images are much stronger than ideas in youth, he has in his imagination made a circuit of all possible vocations, and then it is that he decides upon the one that he wants. Now, these are the three psychological notes of, of teenagers. And the first two, we said, are psychical. And the third is physiological. And it's the only one that we are going to stress. Tonight, and say something about a virtue that is hardly ever addressed to teenagers. And the virtue which is the key to their future happiness, and to inner peace, and good social relations. It is the virtue of purity. Too often it is thought that this virtue is negative, the denial of self-expression, the extinction of personality, the suppression of vital urges. It is none of these things. It's something very positive. Pure water is more than the absence of dirt. Pure diamond is more than the absence of carbon. And purity, too, has its own content. You moved up on me the wrong time. I'm going over the blackboard. <laughs> they, must have, they must have thought I was going into poetry at that moment because... Whenever they suspect that there's a sustained emotion, they move right up on me. <laughs> what is purity? We will give half the definition. Purity is reverence for mystery. For mystery. What is a mystery? Mystery in Greek is a sacrament. And the sacrament or a mystery have two aspects. One is visible, the other is invisible. One is material, and the other is spiritual. For example, a handshake is a mystery or a sacrament. This is not a handshake. Something visible about it, but it lacks that invisible spiritual element, namely the communication of welcome. A word is a mystery. There's something material about it, namely the auditory stimuli of the word. If I tell a joke, a horse hears the joke just as much as you do, but the horse doesn't give a horse laugh, and you might. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Why? Because 
the horse does not have the capacity and the power to grasp the invisible spiritual element, namely the meaning of the word. A kiss is a sacrament. Something visible about it and something invisible, namely the communication of love. And when that is wanting, then it becomes an insult. Now, purity is reverence for mystery. What mystery? The mystery of sex. Sex has two elements. One that is material. Everyone is male or female. Something that is invisible. Something that is spiritual. What is that? The power of creativeness that has been given to man and woman. Almighty God has communicated his great creative power to man and woman. And it is this urge toward creativeness and this sharing in the possibilities of divine fecundity that stirs the adolescent, stirs man and woman to bring forth the mutual incarnations of their love and to produce the raw material for the kingdom of heaven. And so sacred has this consciousness of the power of creativity that has been given to man and woman, so sacred is it that all peoples, the Jewish people, the Christian people, and all pagan peoples have always surrounded it with religious, sacred, liturgical rites in order to indicate that here there is the communication of a great God-given power. What then is purity? Purity is reverence for the mystery of creativeness. Why is it? No one is ever scandalized at seeing people eat in public. There are some people that do not mind eating in the front window of child here on Fifth Avenue. And most people in Paris eat outside. No one is scandalized, but why is it we're scandalized at seeing people make love in public? The manifestation of affection wrong? Certainly not. Why then are we shocked? We are shocked because, by the very nature of things, this is something that is personal. Something so very personal and secret and mysterious, that we do not want to see it vulgarized, we do not want to see it cheapened, we do not want to see it profaned. What is obscenity? It is the reduction of mystery to a jest. It is the making of something that is holy unholy, public, vulgar. And vulgar comes from the Latin word vulgus, which means crowd. When then the youth is pure, he's keeping a great mystery for himself until the divinely appointed time when God wills him to use it, and when God and society both sanction its use. It is this that explains chivalry 
in the boy, the teenager, and timidity in the girl. Chivalry in the boy, he does not know it. He could not explain it, for words come hard to a teenager. But there's a feeling of awesomeness before a mystery. In the timidity of the girl, there's a guarding of a secret from a too precocious revelation. Whence shame in the young? It is the veil that God and his nature have both drawn over that mystery until the time comes the divinely appointed time when it may be used as God intended that it should be used. The mystery then that surrounds it is something like the mystery of a flag. The flag of this great country of ours is, of course, just a piece of cloth. That's what is visible and material about it. But there's also something invisible about it something spiritual. And that is the land and the traditions and the institutions for which it stands. And if then our youth would be conscious of the great dignity of its secret, and if parents and educators would understand it, then let them tell the youth and in their quiver they have many arrows that they may shoot during life. But there is only one arrow that they may shoot but once. And that is the arrow of youth. Be sure that it hits the target, the divinely appointed target. Love of God, love of country, love of neighbor. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, heard on Radio Maria. A Christian Voice in Your Home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. It's hard to believe that over 30 million viewers tuned in each week to watch Archbishop Sheen's television show, Life is Worth Living. And so that is a lot of souls uh, being touched by the gospel. And I think, uh, of course, our good friends at uh, bishopsheentoday.com uh, have to be applauded for sharing these old television broadcasts on their website. Again, the website bishopsheentoday.com has over a hundred YouTube videos that feature uh, many of these television shows. Uh, they have the links to those seasons and um, you know, he had many seasons on television in the 50s and the 60s, and so uh, many of them are available on the website bishopsheentoday.com. And of course, there's a great selection of books and audio recordings, 
uh, all of our archive shows uh, from uh, Radio Maria are on the website. And so, again, please enjoy uh, these hundreds of hours of, of gems, I like to say. They're called Sheen Gems. And everything is free. You can do free downloads and click on the links. So uh, there's lots to keep you entertained and, of course, informed. And we need to learn our faith. And so who better to teach us than Archbishop Sheen? So that website, again, is bishopsheentoday.com. And, of course, I'm glad to announce that uh, all Radio Maria listeners and uh, those who have tuned into the podcast are uh, invited to visit... Um, Again, two uh, prominent uh, Catholic retailers of books. Um, we think of our good friends at Tan Books and also our good partners at um, Sophia Institute Press. And so uh, sometimes I can't remember them all, but they came to mind this morning as I record this program. Uh, but our good friends at Sophia Institute Press offer a 25% discount on all their books. Uh, so uh, visit their website, sophiainstitute.com. And uh, I tell you, many authors, including, of course, Archbishop Sheen, and uh, use the promo code SHEEN25 when you check out, and they'll give you a 25% discount on everything. So, again, Sophia Institute Press, uh, many fine books there. And our good friends at Tan Books are offering a 15% discount on every one of their books for our listeners, and uh, the promo code you would use at Tan Books is just the word Sheen, so S-H-E-E-N. So use the promo code Sheen during checkout and receive a 15% discount. And their website is tanbooks.com. So uh, good friends at Tan Books and Sophia Institute Press, uh, everyone needs a discount these days, especially on books. And uh, I, I tell you, we don't have enough good books in our own personal libraries. And I think many of us got away from reading with all the technology of the internet and scrolling on our cell phones, uh, but there's nothing like picking up a good holy book uh, to help us on our spiritual journey. All right, we will now uh, turn to our catechism lesson where Archbishop Sheen will be talking about marriage problems. So I ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy this teaching by the Venerable Archbishop Sheen. God love you. Peace be to you. It is very often assumed that life should be without trials and difficulties. Our blessed Lord did not predict it so. He said in this world you shall have tribulation. Even when one enters into a realm of love, such as marriage, there are trials and difficulties. And it is those that we would consider in this particular lesson. This is what might be called a what-to-do kit when there are difficulties in marriage. We shall consider two. First, when marriage dulls. Second, when the other partner becomes what is sometimes said impossible. First, when marriage dulls. Now this it does, simply because everything in life dulls after a time. Love does not continue to be one abiding ecstasy. 
simply because flesh is the medium of married love, it suffers the penalty of the flesh. It becomes used to affection. As life goes on, a greater stimulus is required to produce an equal reaction to sensation. The eye can soon become used to beauty. The fingers used to the touch of a friend. The intimacy, which first was so desirable, could become at times a burden. There is such a thing as, I want to be alone feeling, or I think that I will go home to mother feeling. And these strip the eye of rose-colored glasses. Bills begin to come into the kitchen, and love is in danger of walking out of the parlor. The very habit of love becomes boring because it is a habit and not an adventure. It is conceivable that there might be even a yearning for a new partner. Then there comes with children multiplied accidents and diseases and all of this tends to bring down the vision from the clouds to very realistic visitations to the nursery. And sooner or later, the affective, emotional life is brought face to face with this question. Is love a snare, a delusion? Does it promise what it cannot give? I thought this would be complete happiness, and yet it has settled down to a routine. Now at this point, those who think that love is an evolution from the beasts, not a gift of God, falsely believe that if they had another partner, that other partner could supply what is presently lacking. No, that is a fallacy, because it forgets that the emptiness does not come from the other partner but from the very nature of life itself. Now here's the reason for that feeling. The heart was made for the infinite. Only the infinite can satisfy it. This first ecstasy of love that was given to a couple was to remind them that love was a gift that came from heaven and that only by working toward heaven would they ever really discover it to be infinite. Remember when our Lord gave bread at Capernaum, and then later on he spoke to those who received the bread about the Eucharist, the bread of everlasting life, his very self. He was using the bread that he gave to their stomachs as a kind of bait to make them become interested in the bread of life, the Eucharist. And so too the human love that God gives us is a bait. It is a kind of a divine come on in order that we might seek the flame which is God. When married life becomes dull, one has not hit the bottom of life. 
One has only hit the bottom of one's ankle. There's a world of difference between the two. One has not hit the bottom of his soul, but only the bottom of his instinct, not the bottom of his mind, but only the bottom of his emotional life. The aforementioned trials are merely so many contacts with reality which God sends into every life. If life went on as a dream without any shock of disillusionment, who would ever attain perfect happiness? Who would ever want God? The majority of men would rest in mediocrity. If there were not this push on for the perfect love, Acorns are not content to be saplings. Children have to grow up, and our love has to grow up. Therefore, God keeps something back, namely himself in eternity. If he did not, we would never push forward. Therefore, he makes us every now and then run up against a brick wall. In such a crisis, we begin to feel our non-entity. We've got an overwhelming sense of nothingness, loneliness. And then if we look at it rightly, we see that, well, this life is only a bridge to eternity. The crisis of nothingness is caused by the meeting of a fancied ideal in reality, of love as the ego thinks it, and of love as it really is. No, love is not a snare. God is not mocking us. And it must not be thought either that this sense of uh, nothingness that comes over marriage, dullness, is peculiar to marriage itself. It happens in the spiritual life, too. We were dedicated to God as priests, others... Brothers and nuns and contemplatives, they all reach this crisis. Prayers become dry and formal. There's danger that we may become used to touching the bread of life. There is not the same emotional thrill in reading Mass when one has ordained 40 years as there is at the first Mass. There may not be that same ecstasy in visiting the sick when one has ordained 50 years as there was a thrill on the first sick call. And the nun who's teaching children for 30 or 40 years has to bring herself with extra prayer to realize that all those youngsters there have been put before her as charges by Almighty God. It becomes difficult for all of us to meditate. Thanksgivings are apt to become shorter after Mass. So we have our problem, too. It's a problem of love. How can I love better? How can I pray better? How can I establish greater union with God? Well, the answer is, by sacrifices. Now, inasmuch as we are not here concerned with the development of the spiritual life, but only with the development of love, life, and marriage, 
we return again to marriage, and we say that just as there is such a thing in the spiritual life as the dark night of the soul, so too in marriage there is such a thing as the dark night of the body. And just as the dark night of the soul in the spiritual life needs considerable purification through self-denial in order to reach deeper insights of love, so too in marriage. Whenever there's discontent, God is stirring the waters of the soul. Really, he's reminding us that the perfect love for which we crave is not here. We are on the road to it. Just as, for example, a mother eagle will throw its young out of the nests in order that they may learn to fly. And so too God in these moments of trial gives wings to our clay feet. And this dryness, either in the spiritual life or married life, can be either for salvation or damnation. Depending upon how it is used, there are two kinds of dryness. This dryness in either the spiritual or the married life can be used either for salvation or damnation. It all depends upon how it is used. There are two kinds of dryness. There is the one which rots, which is the dryness of love without God. And there is the dryness which ripens. And that is one when one goes through the fire and the heat of sacrifice. In therefore these moments of dullness, in this crisis of nothingness, the idea of eternity has to be reintroduced. But there's this difference. In the days of romance, the eternal emphasis was on the ego's durability in love. And the ego's durability in love. In the crises of nothingness and dullness, the eternal element is God, not the ego. Love now says, I will love you always, for you are lovable through eternity for God's sake. You see which love, uh, that love which began with pleasure and self-satisfaction changes into love for God's sake? The other person becomes less the necessary condition of passion more the partner of the soul. Our blessed Lord said that unless the seed fall to the ground and die, it will not spring forth into life. Nothing is reborn to a higher life without a death to a lower one. The heart has its cycles as well as the planets, and the movement of the heart is an upward spiral and not a circle which turns in upon itself. The crisis of nothingness which follows a dream come true needs its purification and its cross. And the cross is not a roadblock on the way to happiness. It is a ladder up which one climbs to the very heaven of love itself. 
Therefore, there's no need of running off to someone to analyze your mental state simply because you find life dull. Intensify your love of God. Begin to look upon the other partner as a gift of God. And then love will not be dull. And we will see every human creature bathed in that beauty of God's love. That brings us to this other problem of marriage and trial. Namely, when marriage becomes a cross. And when, as some say, it is impossible. Well, in marriage, there is for better or for worse. Sometimes it turns out worse. And that is the problem that we are discussing now. Suppose the husband or the wife becomes a chronic invalid or develops antisocial characteristics, becomes a drunkard, cruel, unfaithful, Tyrant, bossy. What are we to do? Well, we said we have to regard always the other person as a gift of God. Now, sometimes God's gifts are sweet, and sometimes God's gifts are bitter. But whether the other person be sweet or bitter, sick or well, young or old, that other person is still a gift of God. If we're selfish, we have to get rid of the other partner. Why? Because the other partner is a burden. If we are Christian, then we take on the burden as something coming from the hand of God himself. St. Paul said, bear the burden of one another's failings, then you will be fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, if you object and say, well, God never intended that anyone should live under such difficulties, the answer is flatly, oh, yes, he does. Did not our blessed Lord said, Say, if any man has a mind to come my way, let him renounce himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The man who tries to save his life shall lose it. It is the man who loses his life for my sake that will secure it. We would all like to have tailor-made crosses. In other words, we are very willing to take on some mortification and self-denial if we can choose it. But when God chooses it, like a bad husband or a bad wife, then we say, oh no, I cannot take that cross. Why cannot we realize that what sickness is to an individual, an unhappy marriage may be to a couple, a trial sent by God in order to perfect them spiritually. After all, without certain bitter gifts of God, many of our spiritual capacities would be undeveloped. Now, such a marriage 
may indeed be a martyrdom. But at any rate, he's not robbing his own life of honor, nor robbing his soul of peace. The acceptance of such trials of marriage is not a sentence to death, as some believe. The soldier is not sentenced to death because he takes the oath to his country, but he admits that he's ready to face death rather than lose honor. An unhappy marriage is not a condemnation to unhappiness. It is a noble tragedy in which one bears the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune rather than deny a vow that was made to the living God. If it be noble to be wounded for the country we love, then is it not nobler still to be wounded for God? And here is this verse of Scripture, which very few people think about, and which is so important. It is in St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. In other words, the merits, the prayers, the sufferings, the patience, the meekness of one passes into the other. If, for example, the other partner who is an alcoholic, if that partner was sick, would you not take care of him? Suppose he had tuberculosis or a heart attack. Would you leave him? Now, if he has a moral heart attack, Is he to be abandoned? And by a moral heart attack, I mean guilty of any one of the sins that make marriage so very difficult. If there's such a thing as the transfusion of blood from a healthy member of society to a weak member of society, why can there not be and why is there not the transfer of sanctification? A wife can redeem her husband and a husband can redeem the wife. There is a spiritual communication that does not have indeed much romantic satisfaction in it, but its returns are eternal. And many a husband and wife, after infidelities and excesses, will find themselves saved on judgment day as the faithful partner never ceased to pour out prayers for his or her salvation. Let me tell you this story. To indicate how the merits of one will pass into the merits of another. At the turn of this century, there was married in Paris just an ordinarily good Catholic girl and an unbelieving medical doctor of the name of Le Sœur. He promised to respect the faith of his marriage, but immediately after marriage, tried to break it down. In addition to practicing medicine, he became the editor of an anti-clerical atheistic newspaper in Paris. 
His wife reacted and decided that she would study her faith. So she built a library of apologetics, and he built up an atheistic library in the same house. In May 1905, as she was dying, she said to her husband, Felix, when I am dead, you will become a Catholic and a Dominican priest. He said, Elizabeth, you know my sentiments. I have sworn hatred of the church and sworn hatred of God, and I shall live in that hatred and I shall die in it. She repeated her words and passed away. Fumbling amidst her papers, he discovered her will. And the will stated that in 1905, she asked Almighty God to send her sufficient sufferings to purchase his soul. And she added, On the day that I die, I shall have paid the price. You will have been bought and paid for. Greater love than this no woman hath, that she should lay down her life for her husband. He dismissed this as the fancies of a pious woman, though he loved his wife in order to forget his grief. He took a trip in the southern part of France. He stopped in front of a church into which his wife, during their honeymoon, had gone for a visit. She seemed to be speaking to him, saying, Go to Lord. He went to Lord, but he went there as a rank unbeliever. He had written a book against Lord, proving that miracles were a fraud and a superstition. But as he was standing before the grotto of Our Lady, he received the gift of faith, so complete, so total, that he never had to go through that process of juxtaposition and say, well, now that I believe, how will I answer this difficulty or how will I answer that difficulty? He saw all that he had believed in its utter error and stupidity. Well, the conversion of Dr. Lesser was about as exciting as the news of the bombardment of Reims. Then time passed. 1924, I made my retreat in a Dominican monastery of, in Belgium, and there four times a day and 45 minutes each day, I made my retreat under and received the spiritual direction of Father Le Sir, Dominican Catholic and priest, who told me this story. I tell you, it is not often that you can make a retreat under a priest who every now and then will say, as my dear wife Elizabeth said. But the moral of the story is, love is not here completely and totally. It is in God. And by loving God here, we save the other partner, whether it be a bad wife or a bad husband. For once married, they are two in one flesh. God love you. are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. 
I want to thank you for joining me this week to uh, listen to a little bit of the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen. Uh, he loves uh, saving souls and uh, had that famous line from one of his books, and uh, it was actually called Peace of Soul from 1949. And he said, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. Uh, he really wants to help save souls, and we hope we uh, did our part today in helping improve uh, your soul. And um, I tell you, we're all trying to get to heaven, and so every little bit helps. And so uh, please spread the word of Bishop Sheen Presents uh, to your friends, neighbors, and family. Uh, we love to continue to share this uh, beautiful apostolate, and so we ask you to pray for us here at Radio Maria and, of course, at Bishop Sheen today. And so, my dear friends, uh, a reminder of that website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com, where you can find hundreds of hours of Sheen's video and audio recordings, along with a number of books. And so, until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.